Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we are bringing you my conversation with Tim Galeri, Managing Director of Sierra Ventures in San Mateo, California. Tim is also, first and foremost, a very successful technology entrepreneur. In today's episode, we're going to dive into how Sierra Ventures finds companies in Silicon Valley, but also across the rest of the country. We're also going to talk about why having a great idea is very different than building a successful company and the three ingredients necessary to build a successful company, including the capital, the people, and the strategic playbook. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim Galeri. All right. Welcome to Fast Frontiers today with Tim Galeri, Managing Partner, Sierra Ventures. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Uh, we got two Tims. We're going to have to come up with some nicknames here. I love your background, Tim. Tim's a, a former serial entrepreneur, built two software infrastructure companies. Uh, Scopus Technologies went public in 1995 and Octane Software acquired by Epiphany for $3.2 billion. You joined Sierra Ventures uh, in 2002 focused on big data and artificial intelligence. You've had two companies you've been able to take public through Sierra Ventures, SourceFire, and Make My Trip, have degrees in electrical engineering uh, from Punjab uh, Engineering College and University of Technology and robotics from Virginia Tech. So you and I, I have known each other now for several years. We first connected, I think, through, well, it was probably earlier, but more recently through Centrifuge. Correct. I was running this fund of funds. You've been, you and your partners have been active in that network with Centrifuge as well as with Renaissance in Michigan. So uh, that's starting to create more relationships and networks outside of Silicon Valley. So I'd love to just hear from you some, uh, if you have an interesting story or what you think about entrepreneurship and innovation in some of these, what are perhaps overlooked markets and you may have some insights that people would be surprised to know about investing in those markets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, firstly, uh, thank you for the invite. I think um, the question that you you posed about, uh, you know, what's happening outside the Bay Area, so I like try to put at least our firm's institutional knowledge in context and then answer the question. So uh, Sierra has kind of been in business for 37 years, uh, founded by my partner, Peter Vendel, who, um, uh, handed over the baton to uh, myself, Mark, uh, my partner, Mark Fernandez, and Ben Yu uh, in 2012. And uh, we are currently investing our 12th venture capital fund. So it's, uh, you know, safe to say that the firm itself has uh, seen, uh, you know, many, many uh, ups and downs in the economic cycle and has institutional memory on what is, uh, what works and what are the uh, what does a great company look like at inception and, and what does it look like or needs to look like as you progress to the different milestones. Yeah, and by the way, congrats to you and your team for that transition because that doesn't happen normally and it's a real testament to the people and the the institution you built to really create that staying power. Yeah, I, I would I would absolutely put that at the feet of uh, Peter Vendel. I think he just did a masterful job of, I think, uh, guiding the company and then the transition was, was very seamless. Um, and because uh, Sierra is an early stage uh, venture capital firm, uh, we 
learned through the many decades in operation that you have to have a mindset that you cannot trap innovation, you know, in a, in a geography. And that's become even more uh, of a theme in the last couple of decades, you know, certainly um, helped by and accelerated by kind of the emergence of cloud computing and, and SaaS, the, you know, software as a service architectures that, that, you know, that have been used to build great uh, software companies, et cetera. Because of that, our viewers uh, very much, you know, have money, will travel. And, and uh, so we look for, and in fact, 68% uh, of the funds, dollars flow outside the Bay Area wow. uh, to find early stage companies and then really uh, be the bridge into Silicon Valley because companies need two things to grow. They need expertise, uh, advice, and capital. And, uh, you know, Bay Area certainly has a, a, a massive concentration of capital. And through our relationships, we can provide those too. So for us, we really take the geographic boundaries off when we're looking for the best investment in a particular sector uh, and the best entrepreneur uh, that's building that particular uh, company and then try to, you know, invest in them and, and, and them and bring them the effectively the playbook that we've learned uh, through being an entrepreneur myself and what Sierra's done over the years. How, how many of those companies would you estimate are co-located or have, you know, started somewhere else, but then also end up having a Silicon Valley office because of your involvement? I think a, hard, a large percentage, but, uh, you know, I'd say it would be in the, you know, kind of, if I was guessing, sort of 85 to 90% have a location, ultimately a location in the Bay Area. And it's not because of Sierra being there. It's because, you know, it is a really good geography to <coughs> sell a product. And also, you know, business development because uh, there's so much of the large tech companies are headquartered here. So I think a combination of those two reasons is why you know, a lot of companies either relocate a major office or the headquarters kind of in the, in the Bay Area. But that, that's seems, just a question of the, what the business is uh, trying to build. Leading question here, but have you seen that be an advantage to the companies? Like, you know, in my view, that's a strategic advantage. You have a presence in some way in Silicon Valley, but you can... From a hiring, recruiting, loyalty, staff, cost of operation, operating outside the valley gives you an advantage over companies that are purely based in the valley. Absolutely. And, and that's a true statement, always has been. I think it's becoming even more of a non-issue now, given COVID and the fact that mm -hmm. uh, people uh, have been forced to really work, you know, over, over, the, uh, you know over, over Zoom and computers now. I think that sort of a location constraint is going to be removed even more so as we progress into kind of 2020 and 2021. So I think the issue of, hey, I got to have all my you know staff in a location is, is not going to be you know an issue. I think never has been. There have been open source companies uh, that you know we've invested in together. Our, our favorite astronomer uh, based, uh, based in Cincinnati. And that's a great example of an open source based company that's got offices in London and Certainly, Cincinnati, uh, as you know, we've, we've got a hub now in, in Silicon Valley. So that's a very, you know, sort of prototypical uh, investment that we, we like and we see. It's a, it's a great story. And it, and it also shows that the talent and the ideas can be anywhere as well, right? And so I think, I think uh, the, the key point there is, uh, which hopefully, you know, we'll continue to explore on this, uh, this podcast, is that having an idea is different than building a successful business. These are two, you know, mm -hmm. sort of connected, but, but two different sort of playbooks. 
because uh, you can have great ideas and you can kind of certainly you know get things off the ground, but that doesn't mean it becomes a great company. Great companies ultimately are great financial you know beings, the financial models that spit out a lot of cash. That's why Google is valued the way it is. So ultimately, the idea has to transform into a business, has to transform into a financial engine, which is producing EBITDA and cash. And that's how we get valued in the market. So it's, it's, the, it's the capital, people, and the playbook, right? These three things come together right. and they're interconnected Venn diagrams. And that's why I think it's really important to, you know, if you, if you make, uh, as an entrepreneur, make the commitment to build a great company other than an idea, you have to do the work and find the right set of investors that can get you that capital, the people, and the playbook, which are the three things I think that are necessary to build a great company. So, so one of the things I noticed when I was doing Centrifuge and trying to help entrepreneurs and connect them with investors on the coast, and see, see if you agree and see if this matches, you know, it's, it, I developed what I call the first principle, which is capital follows growth. Yeah. Like investors will invest anywhere if you're growing. The challenge you have when you're in, in an overlooked market is you may have a great idea, you may have great talent, but that's, that's just not enough, right? Because you, you have that all around you in Silicon Valley. What is going to cause you to get on an airplane? In the yeah. case of Astronomer, you didn't even have the growth yet. You had the open source community and data that showed the level of developer engagement that mm-hmm. is a leading indicator of where it's going. Yeah. Right? But would, would, you, would you agree with that, that, that companies outside of your home region typically are going to need to have some compelling growth metric before you're really going to be able to dig in? Yeah, I think there's, there's either a compelling growth metric or, um, uh, you know, there's several examples of that that, that get in, investor interest. Or the entrepreneur themselves has to have a really interesting background into which one can uh, one can invest. Uh, both of those have you know seem to seem to work. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, so one is uh, I invested in a company out of uh, Tokyo in the in, again in the data space called Treasure Data, and this is uh, again a founding team, Kaz and Hero. Both of them were first time founders, and they built this uh, effectively this cloud data warehouse, which was, uh, you know, a novelty kind of back six, seven years ago. Now, obviously with all the, um, Redshift and so forth with AWS and, you know, big, big, uh, big table from, from, um, you know, Google, uh, these have, these have become common kind of artifacts in the, in the cloud. So uh, what struck me with them was that cause was the, at 28 years of age, he was the head of the Hadoop society in Japan. I mean, the guy had a following, absolutely brilliant, brilliant technologist. And on top of that, Hero brought, you know, kind of operating chops in, in, the, in the company and how, do, how you monetize the service. And when I met them, they'd already, you know, closed, you know, a handful of customers and there was clearly product market fit. So what uh, we were then again able to do is bridge the company into, you know, becoming a U.S. Series A uh, company. And one thing led to the other, and we, you know, company grew till uh, to about thirty million dollars in recurring revenue, and we sold it to SoftBank Arm uh, Group a little over a year ago for six hundred mil. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great example of again, you know, very uh, open to building a company. Founders, uh, great technologists. So what I look for is causes background was the selling point, right? In this case, but just his background was so interesting, and what they built was so elegant right that uh, that's that's the thing that made me um uh 
uh, write the check. And I, by the way, I did not go to Tokyo to uh, meet the rest of the team. I mean, it was, um, you know, there was, there were some people we knew in Tokyo that knew about the company. And uh, I mean, that was a small company at the time, six, seven people in Tokyo doing engineering. So, and we'd written, we'd led Series A, I think it was a $5 million check. Uh, very similar to kind of how we did astronomer. So, so two things there. One, would you say that his, there, there, you, you mentioned there was some empirical data that you might say is a kind of a proxy for growth or is a form yes. of growth, which is his leadership in the Hadoop community, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, oftentimes when you think of, I think everybody hangs their hat on, I hear entrepreneurs saying, oh, we have to get to a million ARR before anybody will look at us. Yeah. And that, that I just cringe when they say that because it's not a, you're not looking for a data point. Yeah. You're looking for a growth metric and the growth likely is revenue, but it's not always revenue, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, uh, Tim, the other thing is that uh, one of the things that entrepreneurs need to realize is they need to kind of step out of their cocoon and look at what's happening in the overall market, right? Mm-hmm. So and you and I know this, that, you know, I mean, there was whatever, like $46 billion raised in 2019, you know, there was $136 billion deployed. This is just U.S. numbers in 10,000 companies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are the stats, right? And out of those 10,000 companies, and this is the our, our lovely power law in venture capital, which is 2.5% actually produce 70 to 100% of the returns. Right. Right. Amazing. So you as an entrepreneur are effectively, when you come up with the 10,000 and first company, you have to be aware that most probably it's not a unique idea. There is mm-hmm. six to 10 other teams that are working on some thing similar. And I think being prepared mind and being very uh, articulate about why your approach is different. This I'm answering the question or the point that you make, I made and completely agree with you that getting to a million dollars is not the point, how you got to the million dollars, what's special about your go-to-market and your keen awareness of of the competitive landscape is, is, is something that I look for. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs that don't show that level of rigor uh, are just lazy because there is no excuse. Everything is on the internet. Well, when you were an entrepreneur, that, when I, yeah, when you were an entrepreneur, when I was an entrepreneur, we didn't have that information. We didn't have any of this, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to be able to just look up and see the competitors go to pitch book or crunch base. You had to talk to people and figure it out. Right. It's yeah, amazing. So, so I think the kind of the lesson to the entrepreneurs is that, you know, have, I, having an idea is great. The, the foundational work that they have to do to make it a unique investable opportunity by a great, you know, a VC, uh, that has probably seen some variation of the theme given that's what all we do, right? Like you and I look at hundreds of business plans a week and, and we invest in, you know, a very small number of them a year. So all the no's don't go into a wastebasket, they go into a brain, and there's obviously pattern matching going on all the time. And uh, that work has to be done by entrepreneurs, um, you know, irrespective of whether you're in the Bay Area or in Cincinnati or Tokyo or wherever. Right? Exactly. I was going to say that. Regardless of what geography you're in, yeah. if, you're, if you're only limited to what you know about your geography and not the national or global market yeah. that you're operating in, then you're just, it's not going to be enough. Yeah. Right? What so you mentioned with cause and it relates to where we are today in terms of potentially doing investments without maybe ever meeting the management team. Are have you done that or do you think that will happen at Sierra? 
Yeah, we've done that actually. And so since COVID hit uh, in March and since lockdown, we've done six investments uh, already. Um, and this will be investing out of a fund 12, which luckily was raised in January uh, 2020. It's, it's something that being lucky is better than being good, as I say. I think initially what we were trying to do is um, only invest if we had met the entrepreneur before or we knew the investor really really well although having met the entrepreneur before was was you know what was uh, almost a necessity in the first couple of deals that we did but then given that we uh, tend to do 30 to 40 investments in a fund because we like to write a lot of seed uh, investment checks and then you know kind of hydrate the winners like we've done with astronomer you know we uh, got to a point where you know we wrote smaller checks uh, to teams that we hadn't met. So I'll give you two examples. So I did an investment in a, in an, uh, in a, in a company, in the, again, in the data space. Michael uh, Driscoll, who's, a, who's the CEO of this company, is somebody that Scott Yara and I had known at Greenplum. And we just loved him at that time. So now going back 10, 12 years, he built another company, sold it to Snap, and he came, you know, back to us with uh, with an idea, and uh, both Scott and I invested in that as a as a seed deal. Now we wrote, you know, seven fifty k check over Zoom, but that's only because we knew Michael, you know, from from you know twelve years ago, right? So that's one example of somebody that we'd known before and had institutional knowledge about him and really liked the idea. The other one is a three hundred fifty k check of a guy that I've never met. Uh, in person, who uh, I know the investor really well. Um, uh, he was uh, working on a great idea. He was, uh, you know, seven, eight years at, at Google. Uh, he was, uh, he topped the IIT uh, exam in India, which wow. uh, is the leading, you know, sort of technical institution. Uh, these, so just to kind of a million people compete for uh, getting into those colleges. And he was in the top 10. I mean, this guy. So, when you look at those sort of signals and you look at the Google experience, you look at what he's working on now, for us, that was worth a, a bet and, and you know, we, we, uh, we wrote the check. So anyway, I, I think the, the, the short answer is that there has to be some connection. Um, and um, I think we're, we're getting comfortable with, with, uh, with, with uh, writing those kind of checks. I think it'll be hard for us to write a Series A check, honestly, without physically meeting the uh, person, but I, I don't, you know, I think a seed check is, is fine. Sure. Well, that's, I'm sure going to be good news to a lot of entrepreneurs out there, but it does underscore the importance as an entrepreneur to, to reach out in whatever market you're operating in, reach out and get to know the people who are the leaders in that market, both to understand it, but also to build that network. Social signal is super important. Whenever uh, I'm listening to a pitch by somebody, I, I go to LinkedIn I see what the connections are, right? Like it's just intuitive mm-hmm. for me. So I got Zoom running on one one screen and I got LinkedIn on the other, right? Right. And I'm kind of typing and kind of cross-connecting, right? And even sometime even in the middle of the pitch, I'll send a quick text or a LinkedIn message to somebody, hey, what do you think of this guy? Right, yeah, yeah. Entrepreneurs would probably, it's good for them to understand and realize that most VCs are very good networkers. Yeah, it's literally... Uh, and this is no exaggeration, but, you know, again, going back to 37 years in the market and a market that's grown with us, 
we can get to anybody's background like in a, in a call or two, right? Like it is, it is not hard, right? Speaking of that, the, the other secret weapon that you have at Sierra is your CXO network. Can you, yes. can you talk about that and how that relates to this in terms of network, but also how it relates to geography and where those folks come from? Yeah. So uh, I think the context of the, the CXO network comes from the realization, again, I'm going back to those 10,000 companies being uh, invested every year in the U.S., that how does a venture capital firm like ours win an unfair share of the best deals, right? Like that's our job. The 50, 30 to 50 deals that we put into a fund have to be the best companies. And the only way we know how is to narrow cast uh, our strategy. So we publicly talk about this all the time. We're a B2B fund. That's all we do. So we don't do consumer tech. Uh, we do early stage. So we do seeds and series A's. These are the kind of checks you write. Here's the contract from Sierra. This is what you can expect from us. As partners, all that you know, published, talked about, podcasted, uh, and we we try to put our brand through a practice and in, in the in, into the uh, into the uh, you know kind of the way entrepreneurs hang out. And I think in that context, one of the biggest asks that entrepreneurs have because we do early stage work is, hey, can you uh, help me validate my idea? Right. So we started thinking about this about 14 years ago, Tim, and we realized that through our network and relationships, we knew these uh, chief information officers at, at Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 kind of companies. So we started building this a CIO network initially, which then became the CXO network because you know CTOs raise their hand and chief marketing officers raise their hand, and that's now become an 80-person strong uh, network. And all these CXOs are only tied to Sierra because we are a conduit for, for innovation. So later today, for instance, we are hosting the entire senior management team from Gap. Sally Gilligan, who is the CIO there, is on the CIOX board. And we've handpicked four companies that are presenting to Sally and our leadership team. And uh, we are trying to educate them on what the, what the future trends are uh, that we are seeing. So the contract uh, that we have with these CXOs is that uh, we are their innovation arm uh, and, you know, they can depend on us to give them visibility in what, what's exciting happening in the Valley. What's interesting for entrepreneurs is that they get very honest feedback. Sally and her team are going to give very good feedback that, hey, that's a great idea. That one, not so much because Oracle or AWS is coming up with such a product in two weeks or two months, mm-hmm. right? So this very fast iteration where the yeses are really important, but the noes are even more important. Uh, is what the CXO board uh, delivers. And I try to tell entrepreneurs, this is not your uh, list through which you'll make your Q2 and Q3 in 2020. Right. So the idea is not to sell them product if they're naturally and buying the company's product great. But I think it's the, um, it's the time and the intellectual input they give into the idea, which I think is the most important. And I think yeah. that's, uh, that's what this but, does. That's interesting. So at Refinery, we invest, I call it early scale. So post-seed. Yeah, you know, and, and there's a step before you can start scaling. I talk about thinking of revenue in two phases, test revenue and then scale revenue. Yeah. And I think you're not optimizing for revenue in the early days. You're optimizing for learning. Yeah. Right. So you want different types of customers or who you think your target is. And you want to find out, you know, do you have product market fit? What's the ROI? 
you know, is, is this a replicable company can, like customer? Can you get a hundred of those? And yeah. it sounds like you're treating your CXO network the same way. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. It's right. not purely a sales channel. It's more for information. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I think the, uh, these are very busy individuals and uh, it takes a lot of energy from, from our side to keep mm-hmm. them, keep them happy and going. And we've got a full-time partner on the CR payroll that just, uh, does care and feeding for this uh, the network. So, uh, you know, putting together a day for them takes a lot of work. So uh, we uh, get a lot uh, out of them and we give them back a lot. So I think that's uh, that's how this has uh, worked really well. Have you got the whole network together in person yeah. in the past? So we, uh, in, in the pre-COVID <laughs> world, uh, we, um, we have our uh, limited partners meeting here in the Bay Area. And then right after that, we have a full day when all these folks fly in and then we bring in the kind of the brains, uh, you know, uh, to present and talk about interesting technical topics. So that's a, mm-hmm. uh, that's a well-attended and uh, fun event. We, we do the, with them physically once a year. And then if, uh, you know, I fly to New York or Mark flies to, you know, um, to Atlanta or Ben goes to Chicago, whatever, we do dinners with them. So we, we tend to be very engaged with the year. Um, they're friends now uh, since sure. this is 14th year, right? Yeah, that's... Uh... Huge advantage for you and for your your portfolio companies. So that is right. Um, yeah, yeah. The so what? So speaking of COVID, post COVID, what are the? What do you think are going to be some of the surprising or unexpected new frontiers that are going to open up? Yeah, areas that maybe were on our radar before, but now have accelerated or 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 completely new. Yeah, I think um, you know I, I'm, I forget who said this, but you know never let a serious crisis go to waste, right? You've heard the line before, yeah, and we're in one one big one now, so I look back you know just since I became a VC and as you've mentioned in the beginning of this uh, in two thousand and two, so I was kind of an entrepreneur in two thousand when the crash happened. I was lucky um you know to get uh, octane sold and 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 so forth. that crisis. Obviously, there was a lot of belt tightening, and I believe, you know, uh, Salesforce, for instance, was born in 1999 and went public in kind of 2004, so, you know, approximately 16 years ago, at a billion-dollar market cap. And today, they're at $160 billion market cap. And the entire SaaS uh, ecosystem with Shopify and DocuSign is a, you know, $1.7 trillion value bucket. I kind of look at the birth of SaaS kind of in that downturn, right? You fast forward to 2007, 2008, which was the next downturn. And, you know, effectively kind of the iPhone was born at that time. And seriously, cloud computing, which, you know, AWS's first service was born at that time. And then if you look at those, you know, Azure, AWS, and GCP, so cloud computing, that's roughly about a $70, $80 billion sales engine now and valued again, you know, over a trillion, right? So cloud computing has become the second kind of trillion dollar market born in that crisis. And now we're in this uh, third COVID crisis. And I think the the two things that are coming out of this, one is uh, the acceleration of, uh, you know, kind of the digitization of the enterprise. So there's there was a lot of like McKinsey talk about digitization, right? But now that is going to become and has become a reality, right? What what that means, the downstream effect of digitization is that every enterprise, every vertical has to have development chops. They have to become software company. Are you seeing any of those, from a technology standpoint, any regions, back to geography, 
kind of uh, aligned well? Are there any schools or centers of excellence that are popping up? Canada is a super strong and AI-oriented companies, and I think they're, they're putting out some really good talent and, and, and ideas. But again, I think uh, everybody, the smart students are now studying AI, and I think uh, there will be a downstream effect, like just like anything else. You don't need to be from a you know, classic elite school to be a great entrepreneur, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you just need to have a burning desire to be the best at that, that particular domain. I, I wouldn't be surprised if great companies are born out of, you know, local schools kind of in the Midwest as well. Right. That, that's a really good message. If you put your mind to it, that, that's how I raise my kids, right? It's like, I don't care if you're a child or an adult. If you put your mind to it and put the work in, yeah, you can be the best. So with the, the remaining minutes we have left, talking about frontiers, the trip you did last year. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll give you the summary version. Uh, so I did a car rally. We drove our car, I'll describe the car in a second, from uh, Peking, uh, which is Shanghai, to uh, in China, to Paris, uh, uh, in France. And this was, uh, this was the longest uh, road rally in the world, and uh, I would say the toughest road rally in the world because you're going through some very uh, treacherous terrains, the Mongolia, Kazakhstan, kind of the Siberian side of Russia, uh, and then all the way through, you know, St. Petersburg. And then when you get to Europe, of course, it becomes more modern infrastructure, but kind of the first half of the race is just uh, very treacherous for the car and the driver. (laughs) Uh, Yes, so I drove a 1928 Bentley, six and a half liter, eight cylinder, beautiful, beautiful machine. And we uh, we bought the car and we kind of made it rally prep the car in uh, uh, in, in the uh, which is a little village in Wales, UK. And uh, it happens to be sort of a hotbed for where Bentleys get fixed and sort of souped up. And uh, so yeah, so it was a it was a fun sort of process to get ready for the race. And then uh, me and my uh, my partner uh, in crime, as friend of mine, his name is Rod Judge. We um, we dedicated the race to my dad, who was in the Indian Army, and we drove, and then and, and Raj's granddad, who was in the Indian Army, and uh, we we drove, and uh, there were you know guys that had a lot of spirit and a lot of adventure. I think what uh, uh, to me it was also very similar to kind of startups in a way because when you start a company, you have no idea um, what's going to come at you, and if you did, you would never start a company, right? So in a way, that's that was literally we looked back and and uh, you know we our engine blew up in Mongolia and we had to sort of go you know to this like mining village and get it fixed and get the car towed. I mean, all that stuff was was you know one one curveball after the other. And yeah. if yeah. you knew those hardships were coming at you, you would probably never do the do the trip, but you just do it because it's in the spirit of adventure. And when you look back at it, I mean, it just you know makes you makes you smile. And and uh, so it was. Uh, kind of my partners to let me uh, do this for 37 days, and I was uh, gone for a month and a half. Uh, one of the most exciting things I've done in my in my life. And the the entrepreneurship analogy—that's what I was looking for. And that uh, is terrific. And it's 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 why I named our, our fund Refinery. Actually, is because you're refined as a leader by overcoming adversity. Oh right, right, right. right. And and, yes, that's and right. yeah. There's a, a guy, an author, uh, Stephen Snyder, who who says you know an exceptional leaders thrive in that. You know, just like you. Yeah. We're like, you knew you were going to enter the unknown. Yeah. And you did it anyway. Right. 
And just like entrepreneurs, you have to have a touch of naivete and optimism. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Right. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for taking time and sharing your experiences with us. No, it's, it's a pleasure. And I, I always, always fun to talk to you, Tim. And I love your guitar collection in the back. That's a, that's a much better uh, backdrop than than mine for sure. It's real. It's not virtual. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Dr. Anant Matabushi, professor of biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve University and director of the university's Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics.